Uh, you are familiar with the number of passages in Scripture that promise that God's Word will be preserved, but perhaps this one is not one that you would go to normally. But it's interesting to me how, how much the Bible speaks of this particular thing. Isaiah 59 and verse 21, As for me, this is my covenant with them, saith the Lord, my spirit that is upon thee and my words, which I have, I have put in thy mouth, shall not depart out of thy mouth, nor out of the mouth of thy seed, nor out of the mouth of thy seed's seed, saith the Lord from henceforth forever. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you keep your word. You keep your promises, but you keep your words. The words themselves are valuable. They are the words of life. You don't let one of them fall to the ground. And you have assured us time and time again that uh, your words are kept pure by you. You yourself are diligent, vigilant to do that. We also thank you, Lord, for understanding from Scripture that we have a role to play in that. That role is not for us to become super sleuths or super scientists uh, investigating all the words, but rather our job is to take the word and to read it and to meditate on it, to memorize it, to preach it, to proclaim it, to hear it preached and receive it, to pass it to our children and our children's children, so that generation after generation the word is kept by your people. And I pray that we would be glad to take our place in the long run of Christians who have received the word of God gladly and have proclaimed it and taught it to their children. And I pray that you would help us that we would understand what the issue is, that we might um, be better champions of your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. So uh, <clears throat> what we've done so far, and I, you know, each lesson has been multiple lessons, as you know. We can never just get through a lesson in a night, right? I, I don't know what I'd have to retire or something if that started happening. But after reviewing our church's statement of faith regarding Scripture itself and going through all of that along with the um, proofs and explanations for it, we took a few weeks to examine the manuscript tradition to see what it tells us and what it doesn't tell us. And you remember um, that, it, and I used it uh, really as a way, a means of showing you uh, the manuscript tradition and what it does proclaim, but what it doesn't as well. Um, the claim has been made that uh, there was an emerging canon consciousness that took about three centuries after the closing of the canon. The canon of scripture, the New Testament, closed um, right around 99, right around the end of that first century. So 99 AD, somewhere in there, when John wrote um, his final um, book, which I believe was the book of Revelation. Don't quote me on that. So, um, I, I'm not in this moment, not certain. But I think that was the, the last one. Um, but nonetheless, some of you are looking at me like that knowing look, like you know what it is and you don't want to make me look bad. 
What is it? Do you know what it is? Revelation 9, 16. 96. I was very close. So if you thought it was a hand grenade, it would have blown up. But um, three years off. That's going to bug me for a while. Anyway, uh, so then from there, the, the claim has been made by textual critics that the canon was not recognized immediately, that it took a few hundred years. And I'm not sure even how, if it took 300 years, how the, the saints, you know, in 400 AD could be more certain about the canon than the saints in 150 AD. I'm not sure how that could be. Um, but that was the claim. And so we took some time to go through the, uh, the second, third, and fourth century manuscripts that are available. Uh, we saw that there was one substantial uh, manuscript from the second century, about 88 pages. Um, of course, these are very old, and so the corners are frayed and things like that. There are chunks missing from it, but nonetheless, um, still, it's, it's impressive that we would have that much. Honestly, it's impressive. I, I'm, not, I'm not disparaging those ancient texts whatsoever. Um, I, I think that, you know, the one uh, from the second century, I believe, dates to right around 150. It's, it's about 50 years after the closing of the canon. There is no other uh, ancient text that has um, the, the confirmation, that has the witnesses that we have for the New Testament. There is not. Not any, even close. Uh, if you take some of the ancient writers and the manuscripts of ancient writers, Homer, uh, Plato, uh, Aristotle, uh, some of the, the, their oldest available manuscripts, sometimes, in some cases, are 500 to 1,000 years after it was written. It's the earliest manuscript that we have available today. Uh, but the Word of God... There are witnesses almost from the time that the canon of the New Testament closed. That's amazing. We should not take that for granted, take it lightly, or dismiss it at all. And I'm not preaching that in any way. I am saying, though, that it would be very... Okay, so the idea was that part of this emerging canon consciousness, and this really is what leads to and... and um, gives us the need, according to textual critics, the reason we need textual criticism is because while there was not a canon consciousness, or while it was emerging, um, the people who were copying scripture were careless in their copying. That's the claim that, that is made. And I'm arguing that with one manuscript, it's very difficult to establish carelessness. Um, and I'm not sure, you know, again, I would have to study it a lot more. Maybe I need to admit that I, but, but I'm not sure what the evidences are of that carelessness and what they would be and what you would have to compare it to, except for what we have now. But that's another thing, is that those early, the second, third, and fourth century manuscripts are exclusively Alexandrian. There is not a Byzantine 
manuscript that, that we have available to us that's prior to the 5th century. I believe the 5th century is the earliest Byzantine. All right, and I'm going to get into this a little bit more here in a little bit. So, you know, Alexandrian, Byzantine, it's really based on where it was found. The Alexandrian manuscripts were found in Egypt um, and, and found <coughs> in the last hundred years or so. Um, most of them found uh, around in the 1930s uh, when there were significant excavations being done in Egypt and uh, a rush, almost like a gold rush, to find artifacts and so on. And there were a lot of manuscripts that were found in that time. Right? But the oldest ones are of Alexandria. There's no question in that. So if, and textual critics say that all, all the variants, significant variants, were introduced into the text of Scripture in the first two centuries. Uh, so that maybe is why they look at it that way. The Alexandrian manuscripts are not high quality. And maybe that's the reason why they think that. Uh, but then the argument is made that after the um, second and third centuries, uh, that once the canon was established at uh, the councils, um, Hippo and, um, and I'm forgetting the name of the other one, but, but when the canon was uh, finally the church uh, settled on and, and recognized what the canon was the scripture, then there began to be um, uh, errors of um, trying to help the text, trying to fix, trying to um, repair. So uh, virtuous errors, if you will. Uh, people who were trying to, to correct earlier careless mistakes. Now, um, I'm just, just to talk through, and, and I think we see this with the Texas Receptus as well, the, um, you know, there are somewhere around 12 different editions of the Texas Receptus. And among those 12 or so editions of the Texas Receptus, uh, there are variants between all of them, all right? The earliest editions, and they're the major uh, groups of ERs, Erasmus's Greek New Testament is not officially or technically the Texas Receptus, but the Texas Receptus um, used Erasmus's for theirs. And there isn't a lot of, you have to remember, when we look at the Alexandrian manuscripts, we're talking about, you know, we said yesterday, the two major, yesterday, last week, the two major, it seems like yesterday, but the two major Alexandrian texts, the Codex, Sinaiticus, the Codex Sinaiticus, Codex Vaticanus, and between those two, just those two, which are considered to be the standard, textual scholars call them the most reliable texts of the New Testament. But between those two, there are 3,000 variants in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John alone. Only in those four books, 3,000 variants. And we pointed out to you that some have said that it's 
harder to find two consecutive verses that don't differ from each other. Between those two, some have estimated as much as 80% varying between Sinaiticus and Vaticanus. Um, so, and, you know, I'm getting ahead of myself, but if that's what reliability looks like, then I don't even know what reliability means. I have no idea what reliability is. In comparison to that, the additions of the TR, the Texas Receptus, are extremely reliable and extremely uh, uniform, not total uniformity. I'm not saying that. But they are very much alike in that. Um, but nonetheless, the earliest editions of the TR, we start with Erasmus, and we've got Stephanus, which um, that was his Latin name. Um, we've got Biza, we've got um, the Elzeber brothers. All right, we've got those those major editions, all right, and each one of them produced several new editions, all right? And with each one, the first edition was the worst. And then they fixed the problems in them with each new edition. That shouldn't surprise us with that. If you buy a first edition of a book, you know why any book that you know makes it uh, that people buy has a second edition. You know why they have a second edition quite often? To fix all the mistakes in the first edition. This is human error in these things. And it's very capable, very possible to recognize the errors and fix them. So we're not saying here that the TR doesn't have things that um, could be fixed at all. We're not saying that. We're not saying even or arguing for a, an absolutely word-perfect TR. What we're saying is, though, and then I'm going to get into this. Um, I've been reviewing a little bit. So we're at the third major part of the discussion. I intend to consider this debate over the text of Scripture itself and in the process give you some explanation of textual criticism. The debate over the text of Scripture can be summarized with, I think, three important questions. Number one, do we accept the, the historic church's witness to the text of Scripture, or do we challenge that witness? Do we accept the historic church's witness to the text of Scripture, or do we challenge that witness? Question number two, do we look at the manuscript tradition to see what God has done, or do we look at it to see what man has to do? All right, that's the second question. Do we look at the manuscript tradition to see what God has done, or do we look at it to see what man has to do? And then question number three, do we believe that God has providentially preserved his word, or do we believe that man must scientifically determine what the original text of Scripture says? That is 
the fundamental question when it comes to the preservation of God's word. Those three things. All right, and I'll tell you in advance that we believe that the church speaks his, authoritatively to what the text of scripture is. We believe that when we look at the manuscript tradition, we're looking to see what God has done. And we believe that God has providentially preserved his word so that it is not necessary for us to develop a science in which we seek to restore the text to its original form. That's our answer to the questions. We'll say it in advance. All right, I'm hoping that I can answer these questions in this lesson. First of all, is the witness of the historic church authoritative? Now this is, again, I'll review a little bit. The Bible clearly teaches that the Old Testament was entrusted, the text of the Old Testament scriptures were entrusted to the people of Israel. Romans 3 and verse 2 says that the value, the benefit of being a Jew is, Paul said, much every way. Because unto them was committed the oracles of God. All right? Now the Jews took very seriously that responsibility of preserving and passing down the words of the Old Testament. And they were legendarily careful about those words, which is the reason why there isn't a lot of debate. There is some, but not a lot, about the Old Testament. <clears throat> the um, New Testament is a little difficult, but the Bible tells us, Paul in uh, 2 Timothy 3.15 says that it refers to the church as the pillar and ground of the truth. We, under, pardon me, we understand the truth to be referring to the word of God. And the church is the pillar and ground. Not that the word of God is held up or upheld by the church, but that the New Testament church, the body of believers, the bodies of believers, scattered throughout the world where God's word is preached and believed, they are the ones God has commissioned and trusted with the care of his word. Now, we know that God is the one who's caring for his words, but he is doing it through his people. This is the way he always works. God did not, for instance, God did not dictate the words of Scripture to his disciples. When Paul wrote a letter, it was Paul who was writing, and yet the Holy Spirit was superintending and inspiring those words so that those words were the very words of God. God working through a man. It's the same thing when we win people to Christ. We know that Christ is the only Savior. He is the one who brings a person, a sinner, to a saving knowledge of himself. We know that. We know that the work is God's from beginning to end. And yet, every one of us in our testimony would point to someone who shared the gospel with us, who led us to Christ. Faith cometh by hearing, 
and hearing by the word of God. So God does his work through human instrumentality. He always does. And the same thing is true in the preserving of his word. He preserves his word through us. Okay, now, here's, again, this is where the debate is. The scholars say it, textual criticism is a neutral science. It doesn't matter if you're a believer or an unbeliever, you can do it. And according to, I'll add this, according to the principles of textual criticism, that's true, which is what's wrong with it. The fact that believers can science of textual criticism to come to conclusions almost just the same as both is serious. God, so, so this is God intends to preserve his word through scholars, through science, or through his churches. And our contention is that, again, Paul calling us the pillar and ground of the truth makes it clear that this has been entrusted to us, that it is the churches by means of, and as Paul said to Timothy, he challenged him, the things that you've learned of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. There you see a wonderful description of the process of preservation as we take the word of God and we teach it to our children diligently. What we're doing here in church, when we open the word together and we look at it, and we look at it carefully, and we look at it in depth. Varying degrees of depth, but we're looking at it in depth to see what it says. We're believing that. You're hearing it, receiving it, believing it, teaching your children to do the same. And that's the way, from generation to generation, God's word has been kept pure. And I'm going to add this. Textual criticism as a science is very young. Very young. Really, the first major textual scholars was Westcott and Hort in 1881, in that time frame, not exactly. 1881 is when they uh, gave their edition of the critical text. It's not that there was no examination of text prior to that, but just that it didn't become a mainstream. Even in 1881, it didn't become mainstream. It took quite a while for it to take root and a lot of <laughs> eroding of biblical conviction prior to that happening. Really, textual criticism is only a few generations old. Now imagine this. We are right now, how many years after Christ ascended to heaven? We're coming up on maybe 2,000 years if he, if he was born, in a, you know, how the calendar works. Uh, maybe he was born in 5 AD, 4 or 5 AD. And maybe he died when he was 33 years old or something like that. So we're not quite 2,000, but we're close to 2,000 years after Christ, right? And believers had the word of God, and they preached it and believed it. For 1,900 of those 2,000 years, 1,800 if you give 100 years or 
the canon to be developed, for God to give it, give his words. 1,800 years, give or take a few, believers did just fine. Having the word of God, preaching it, passing it to their children, right? And then the scholars come along and say, no, you need our help. No, you need us to help you, to tell you, to examine, to do, you know, like I say, the scratch and sniff test and the chemical test and the DNA test on the words in order to know which ones they really are. We need textual criticism. We're saying that's not the case. Not at all. One of the great Reformation doctrines was the doctrine of sola scriptura, the sufficiency of scripture in all things. That is a core tenet of the Christian faith, that scripture is sufficient, that we have from God everything that we need. Now, <clears throat> the Catholic Church responded to that challenge, uh, the Reformation challenge, by pointing out all the textual variants in the manuscripts and asking, okay, was scripture sufficient? Then tell me how to know which text we're supposed to use. So, so the earliest ones to do this were the Catholics, all right? So they're coming after it that way, uh, asking how the right textual family could be known without the witness of an infallible church. See, that was their claim. Their claim, their opposition was that you need an infallible church. The church will tell you what you're to do and what you're not to do. The reformers said, no, we need scripture to tell us what to do. Scripture is the authority. All right, so <clears throat> the Catholic Church responded to that and said, well, you have all these manuscripts and you have all these variants, and what are you going to do with that? The reformers responded not by saying, yeah, we probably do need to set up our own uh, textual scholars and textual criticism. But they answered that the word of God is basically available in the received text of Scripture. This is what they were using at that time. So they did not refer directly to the received text. And the reason is because that's what they had. They were using the received text. There was not another text for them to use or that was available to him at the time. This was the text of Scripture in use at the time of the Reformation, and they refused to concede that they had anything less than the essential text of God's Word. And the truth is, despite the attempts from the Roman Catholic Church to muddy the water, God's people believed that they had the Word of God. They believed that. They didn't, they didn't have doubts. They didn't have questions about that at all. Until, again, a little over a century ago, with the erosion of both culture and theology that produced the modernist movement, higher criticism began to treat the Bible as a human invention. And so higher criticism began to examine Scripture not as scripture, not as the authoritative word of God, 
the higher criticism began to examine scripture like a literary analysis. So they analyzed, and this is one of the weird things that came out of higher criticism, were uh, debates over, okay, you're in the middle of 1 Samuel, and the voice seems to change. And they would have like very precise um, qualifications for the voice. So it must have been a new narrator, or this must have been inserted later on into the narrative here. They would go to the Gospel of John, and they would get to, oh, uh, one of the chapters in the middle of John, and they would say, you know, it doesn't seem like John wrote this. It seems like this was a later disciple who wrote this right here. They would go to the Psalms, and they would begin to dispute some of the titles, like the Psalms will say a Psalm of David, and they would say that's definitely not David's voice. He didn't write that way. He wrote this way. And so there was that kind of literary analysis. Along with that, a part of higher criticism uh, was trying to give human explanations for what the authors meant when they described, for instance, a miracle. So the miracles they said that's probably more, you know, it's just, it's just humans who are seeing extraordinary events and describing them in extraordinary, they're blowing it up, they're using hyperbole, all right, so Jesus probably didn't walk on the water, he probably waded out along the shore and it just looked like he was walking on the water. And you know, the Israelites, when they crossed the Red Sea, God didn't really part the water. They waded through in the shallow parts. And I remember Lester Roloff saying, and there was another miracle, if that was the truth. If the children of Israel crossed the Red Sea through the shallow parts, then there was another miracle. Because somehow Pharaoh and his entire army drowned in that shallow water. Maybe they laid down, maybe they inhaled. Who knows? Um, but uh, that's the kind of thing that was happening with higher criticism was an attempt to give a natural explanation for every supernatural thing in the Word of God, okay? Now, this is the kind of thing that's taking place in our universities, all right? Not now. Then, back in the uh, early 1800s, uh, late, late 1800s, late 1800s. The early 1800s, the change, the shift was to Unitarianism. The late 1800s, early 1900s, we have the entrance of this higher criticism. Now, one of the temptations that always comes to play with scholarship is the desire for respectability. When you want to make a career out of scholarship, you want to be respected by your colleagues. So the, um, the, a, a large number of scholars are embracing this higher criticism. And the faithful Christians are, of course, being treated like faithful Christians would be treated when unbelief rears its ugly head. They're being mocked, they're being ridiculed, they're being criticized. And so what some of them did, unfortunately, amounted to a compromise with higher criticism. They didn't embrace 
higher criticism. But what they did was they said, okay, the, the miracles are not negotiable. The authors are not negotiable. The books are not negotiable. The stories are not negotiable. But the words, we can evaluate the words and examine the words. And so that brought in what has been called lower criticism. Lower, okay, so higher criticism disregarded and dismissed the doctrine of inspiration, the inspiration of Scripture, and treated the Word of God as a human book written by man. Lower criticism did the same to the preservation of Scripture. Lower criticism said, you know, the books are not to be challenged, the stories are not to be challenged, the miracles are not to be challenged. But the words, though, the words need to be examined and evaluated. And so lower criticism, here, this from the New World Encyclopedia, higher criticism treats the Bible as a text created by human beings at a particular historical time and for various human motives in contrast with the treatment of the Bible as the inerrant word of God. Lower criticism is used for attempts to interpret Bible te biblical texts based only on the internal evidence from the texts themselves. So by comparing and contrasting various manuscripts to see which word belongs and which does not. Uh, Geisler and Nix, in their book, said lower criticism is applied to the form or text of the Bible in an attempt to restore the original text. So that is what, that's how we got to this place. The discovery over the past century or so of ancient manuscripts, some dating back to the second, third, and fourth centuries, has contributed heavily to the general dissatisfaction many have with the Textus Receptus. This is unfortunate. Uh, to quote one man, this is an anemic attempt to have it both ways. In other words, continuing to believe in the Bible while accepting to a limited extent the new critical approach to textual studies. It is a compromise with scholarship that is an unbelieving compromise. Again, it, what it did was it allowed for a person to examine the text of Scripture, whether that person believed it was the Word of God or not, and to make decisions about which words belonged and which words did not. So churches then have essentially, by embracing this lower criticism, and by embracing modern textual criticism, churches have ceded their authority as the pillar and ground of the truth to the scientists and scholars rather than use their authoritative voice to bear witness to the text of Scripture. Okay? And as we said in a previous lesson, the church's testimony is submissive to Scripture 
but is binding on the saints. So in other words, the church, God's people, have spoken with authority about what the word of God is. The fact that that is being challenged today, heavily challenged today, doesn't change the reality of that. Doesn't change the fact that just as we insist that the 66 books of the Old and New Testament are not up for grabs, are not under debate, are not under review, even so we would insist that that includes the words, not up for debate, not up for grabs. We insist on that because God's people have spoken decisively about where the word of God is. In order, to, in order to overturn the settled opinion of the reformers, we would have to say they did not have the words of God. In 1500, and 1600, they did not have the words of God, which would mean that the bulk of the Christian world did not have the authentic words of God for most of New Testament history. That's what we would have to say. Now, this is the claim that has been made by notable textual critics like Bruce Metzger, Daniel Wallace, Norman Geisler. Oh, they, they haven't said that the New Testament believers for 1,800 years didn't have the right text. But what they have said, though, is that the text of Scripture was corrupted and that it is the work of textual criticism to restore it to the original words. Now, that is saying the same thing. They had a corrupted text for all of those years, and now we are just now finally able to restore that. All of them claim that the TR, the Textus Receptus, is representative of that corrupt text. Metzger said this, subsequent editors, though making a number of alterations in Erasmus's text, essentially reproduce this, listen, debased form of the Greek Testament. That's what he called it. Having secured an undeserved preeminence, what came to be called the Textus Receptus of the New Testament resisted for 400 years all scholarly efforts to displace it in favor of an earlier and more accurate text. That's how he described it. He said this also, in 1624, the brothers Bonaventure and Abraham L. Zever, two enterprising printers at Leiden, published a small and convenient edition of the Greek New Testament, the text of which was taken mainly from Beza's smaller 1565 edition. The preface to the second edition, which appeared in 1633, makes the boast that the reader has the text, which is now received by all, in which we give nothing changed or corrupted. Thus, from what was a more or less casual phrase advertising the edition, what modern publishers might call a blur, there arose the designation Textus Receptus, or commonly received standard text. Partly because of this catchword, the form of the Greek text incorporated in the editions, the Stephanus, Beza, 
and the Ailes Evers had published succeeded in establishing itself as the only true text of the New Testament and was slavishly reprinted in the hundreds of subsequent editions. It lies at the basis of the King James Version and of all the principal Protestant translations in the languages of Europe prior to 1881. So superstitious has been the reverence accorded the Textus Receptus that in some cases attempts to criticize or amend it have been regarded as akin to sacrilege. Yet its textual basis is essentially a handful of late and haphazardly collected minuscule manuscripts and in a dozen passages its reading is supported by no known Greek witnesses. All right, so that's that's how Bruce Metzger, who is one of the foremost, was one of the foremost textual scholars uh, in recent days. That's how he looked at the TR. That's how he saw it. So understand what, what they are saying here is that the Bible of the Reformers was a corrupt, has, haphazard Bible. That's what they're saying. They're saying that believers were holding, maintaining, preaching a corrupt text of the Bible. That's what they're saying. That's what they're claiming. I can't believe that. I'm not going to believe that. I'm not going to believe that there was an extended period of 400 years in which God's people did not have the pure words of God. That's, I, I, I can't accept that. That doesn't fit with anything that we see in Scripture. <clears throat> it is interesting the, the way they dismiss the name as a publisher's blurb. Look, they're advertising blurb. Um, the reader has the text which is now received by all, in which we give nothing changed or corrupted. I think that's, they said that because that's what they believed. They believed that they had the uncorrupted word of God. That's what they believed. They thought that they had that. I don't think they were wrong at all. Not at all. Some have objected to this argument, though. Uh, they've, you know, especially the idea that this was the text of the Reformation. Some have objected because the TR is all that they had. To which we reply, bingo, exactly right. They had the words of God. The words of God that they had were the words of God. That's what they had. That's the point that we're making. The critical texts, the Alexandrian texts, were not in circulation among God's churches. Not then, and from what we can tell, not ever in broader Christendom. It was the text that God's churches gave authoritative witness to that is the text that underlies our King James Bible. And this text was not challenged until Westcott and Hort in their critical text of 1881. <clears throat> so the church historically has declared its witness, and the scholars seek to overthrow that witness. This is the issue, and we insist that the witness of the church is authoritative. 
All right, so that was the first point there, and um, we'll come back and spend another week on this another time uh, in the days ahead.